Hey, good morning and welcome to Christ Church. Like Pastor Andrew said, we are a church about lifting lives, elevating Christ, and we are a church for those who are not here yet. My name is Mike Skunis. I'm one of the vicars here on staff, and it is a joy to be with you this morning as we celebrate the 4th of July. And it is also uh, my joy to start this new series that we have called the Top 10 Most Googled Psalms. Now, we're not going to attack the psalms in any particular order, but just know that over the course of the 10 weeks um, preceding this message, uh, we'll continue to cover the psalms that are most popular, most Googled um, by the general public. And what I really like about the way that we have framed this is that when we are looking for something, anything these days, don't we all just turn to Google? I mean, it's true. I've become incredibly reliant in my own life that if I am looking for something, if I am searching for something, the first thing I do is run to that Google search bar and type in whatever it is that I'm thinking. And in some ways, Google has become our digital truth serum. It reveals to us what we are truly thinking about, what's on our hearts, what's on our minds, and, and what we are looking for in the world. Now, there are some issues with Google, though, that there are some questions that it's really good at answering. So if you want to know what the score of the Bucks playoff game was last night, yeah, Google's really great for finding the answer to that question. If you want to know what the average weight of a blue whale is, Google's got you. But there are some questions that maybe Google's not so good at answering, but because we've become so conditioned, so conditioned to input our thoughts into Google and just Google whatever it is we're looking for, sometimes we ask questions that maybe Google's not very good at answering. For example, this graph is a little bit hard to see, but basically it shows that over the past year, consistently one of the most popular Google searches was, what is the meaning of life? I don't know about you, but I don't think that Google is going to give you a good and satisfying answer to that question, unless the answer is 42. Um, oh, wow! People got that reference. I'm so glad. Um, but we know that when we are looking for purpose and meaning in our lives, that Google's not the right place to look. And I think most of you being in this room this morning know that that's not the best place to ask those bigger questions in life. Um, however, most of your answers would probably be if someone came up to you and said, okay, where do I find the answers to meaning and purpose and truth? You might point them to the Bible. You might point them to the Psalms. And so we have to ask ourselves, though, can we find meaning and truth and purpose in the Bible and in the Psalms? The simple answer is, Yes, but the complicated answer is, it's complicated. <clears throat> and so in order to understand the Psalms, we have to ask ourselves first, what are the Psalms in the first place? Because we often say, oh, it's the book of Psalms. But maybe a more accurate description is that the Psalms are Israel's anthology of songs and poems that held religious and cultural importance to the Jewish people. And in fact, the book of Psalms is not just one book, but it's five books. So maybe more accurately, it's an anthology of anthology of the most important songs and poems to the Jewish people. 
Now, the other thing is that there are many different styles of psalms. That you have hymns, which are poems that are meant to be sung. Um, if you are reading the Bible, sometimes you'll see little uh, subscriptions that say, um, postscripts that say, for the director of music. That's how you know that these psalms were meant to be sung and not just read. Um, there are psalms of lament, in which people cry out in anguish to God, saying, God, I don't know where you are right now. You feel so far away, and I am at this low moment in my life. Where are you? And there are other psalms that are of praise and thanksgiving, that they have seen miraculous things done in their life, and they have seen God's goodness in action, and they can respond no other way except for giving thanks and praise. Not only are there many different styles, but there are many authors who contributed to writing the psalms. Now, sometimes the easy answer that we give when we say who wrote the psalms is sometimes we say King David wrote the psalms, and it's only kind of sort of true. Many of the, songs, or the psalms will say a psalm of David, and David absolutely could have written some of the psalms because he was a poet and a musician as well as a king and a warrior, um, but we should often read that as a psalm that was written for David or about David or during the time of David because there's lots of different people who contributed their voices in the ongoing story of Israel. Now, another thing that we need to remember is that when we read the psalms, we are reading something that was originally written 3,000 years ago in a language that was different than ours. And so sometimes when we just crack open to a random psalm and we start reading, we might miss the fact that these psalms had cultural significance, that they were impactful and they were instantly recognizable to the people who were hearing them. Not so unlike some of the songs that we have today that if I just started singing, Sweet Caroline, you guys would go, yeah, much better. You guys are way better than 9 o'clock. Um, <laughs> or if I started singing, No, we're halfway there. Living on a prayer. Or if uh, my favorite millennial one for me and my generation, or for anybody who's seen the movie Shrek, is that if you start singing, Somebody once told me the world was going to roll me. I sharpest tool in the shed. Oh, yes. Awesome. Okay, one more because I know we have uh, young people in the room, and so I've, I've got to speak to my TikTok generation, right? Um, so if I start singing, good for you, you look happy and healthy, not me. No! <laughs> Man, you guys, you guys failed me, um, but it's okay. I was expecting you guys at least. Come on. Come on now. All right. Um, but the idea is that these songs would have been instantly recognizable to the people who heard them, even in Jesus' time. Because the Jewish people continued to sing these songs in worship and in the regular culture day in and day out. And people would have understood some of the references. So when Jesus says about himself, I am the stone the builders rejected that has become the cornerstone, when people heard that, they would have instantly known, man, that is Psalm 118. And when Jesus was on the cross 
and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We might read that now in our time, in our culture, and we might scratch our heads and think, man, is Jesus losing faith in the Father in this moment? But the people who were standing at the foot of the cross and were in earshot would have heard him singing Psalm 22, a song of lament. And so it is with that context that we need to um, be mindful of as we enter into the Psalms. And there are two other things that um, I need to caution you about before we get into it, um, ways that we might misinterpret the Psalms. The first is that we need to start looking at the Psalms as the ongoing story, the developing story between the relationship between the people of Israel and God. And so if you open up to any just random psalm and read it and start scratching your head, it's okay. It's no more different than if you were to wind up midway through a chapter of Harry Potter. And that without the larger cultural understanding and knowing where the story is going, we might miss some stuff. And the other thing is that um, if we don't have that complete story, we might misinterpret some things. So for those of you guys that know the story of Harry Potter, if I was reading the first book and read the first few chapters, I might close the book and say, oh, I know where this is going. Snape is the bad guy, Harry saves the day, and eventually Harry and Hermione are gonna kiss and live happily ever after. Right, that's Harry Potter in a nutshell. You guys don't even need to read it or see it. Um, <clears throat> But if you are familiar with those stories, you know that one of those statements is true, one of them is false, and one of them is really complicated. <laughs> and it's the same way with the Psalms, that when we are looking to the Psalms for truth and meaning and purpose, some of what the psalmists say is true, and some of it is just more complicated than that. And an example of the way that it gets complicated is that, like I said, there are psalms of lament in which people are crying out in anguish to God. And in their anguish, they question whether God is even still there. And in some instances, they even ask God to curse their enemies. Now, the way that I like to think about this is if you are familiar with this song, Before He Cheats by Carrie Underwood, the one that's like, I dug my key into the side of his pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive. You hear this song of revenge in which a woman who's been cheated on takes it out on this guy's truck and takes a baseball bat to the headlights and keys up the car. Um, in a similar way as that, the psalm, some of the psalms are not meant to be taken prescriptively, meaning as a pastor, I'm never going to tell you to respond to a situation by taking it out on somebody's car. That's not what I, ever what I'm going to ask you to do. Um, and so in the same way, I'm not going to ask you, um, it's not a good model for our own prayer life to think about cursing our enemies. And so we have to remember that there is context to this. But here's the thing. Is this song good? Does it capture accurately the human emotion of anger and anguish? Absolutely. And in the same way, we can't just throw out these songs of lament because they're not theologically helpful, but to us, they're going to reach somebody who is in the low point of their lives and it's going to speak to them in a way that no other 
part of Scripture can, and so that they're still good and helpful and useful. All right, so now with all that context out of the way, where do I start? Well, at the beginning, because that's a very good... Oh, hey, some of you guys got that. That's great. Um, All right, so Psalm 1 goes, Blessed are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers. But they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. But not the wicked. They are like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. They will be condemned at the time of judgment, and sinners will have no place among the godly. For the Lord watches over the path of the godly, but the path of the wicked leads to destruction. Now, I don't know what your emotional reaction is to reading that psalm. There are parts of it that are incredibly beautiful and powerful imagery, and there's some stuff in there that's like, Um, that is a little bit heavy. Um, And so one of the ways that I hope that we approach the Psalms is knowing that these are a snapshot of the developing relationship between Israel and God and a developing understanding of who God is, we also have to keep in mind the end of the story. And so when I'm reading Psalms, I am often asking myself, Is this theology in line with Jesus? And so we're going to go through the lines of the the psalm, and we're going to talk about which ways does this reflect Jesus, and what ways does it get a little bit more complicated? So it says, Blessed are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers. This first line, Blessed are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, this is a really popular formula for how Jesus and many other Pharisees and other preachers and pastors would talk. That they would often say, blessed are you who, and woe to those who. Um, And so we even see in Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount in what is called the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. So if you are listening to this Jesus guy talk, you're like, oh, I know this formula. This sounds familiar. But then there's a way that Jesus diverts from the understanding and the theology that's represented in the Psalms. You see, there's this line that those who do not follow the advice of the wicked also don't stand around with sinners. And so you can imagine that when Jesus was breaking bread with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, that the Pharisees were really confused. They were so confused and asked that they asked Jesus' disciples, they said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? We know what it says in the Psalms. You're not supposed to associate with people like that. And even in our own culture, we still have a remnant of that type of thinking, right? That you are only as good as the company you keep. And so we still have a remnant of that theology in our life, but Jesus shows us a different way. Jesus shows us that we are not just called to be set apart from the sinful, but actually to enter into the lives of people who are far away from God, 
to be a testimony and a witness to God's love and mercy and God's miracles in this world. Now, if we continue in on line three, it says, they are like trees, they being the righteous ones, they are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do, but not the wicked. They are like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. Now, I love this. This is such beautiful imagery that the righteous, that the people of God are like trees planted along the riverbank where they are nourished by their proximity to God. By staying close to God, they start to bear fruit, which is good and bears witness to the world. And Jesus, he uses a very similar metaphor that in the book of John, it records him saying, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus continues the call of the psalm to say, look, stay close to God and now remain close to me and my teaching. And that will bring life and it will bear fruit. Now, this line right here, but not the wicked, they are like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. Jesus also continues this metaphor as well. He says, if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. What Jesus is saying is that if we stray from him and his teaching when we are far apart from God, we're no longer bearing fruit, but that we are no good to this world. That when we don't have those signs of love and mercy and forgiveness and they are not evidenced in the way that we live our lives, then we're no good. Now, if we continue on to line five, it says, sinners will be condemned at the time of judgment. Sinners will have no place among the godly. For the Lord watches over the path of the godly, but the path of the wicked leads to destruction. I don't know about you, but when I think about this and I think of references in our own culture, I start singing, I'm on a highway to hell. And that's really scary. Like, when we encounter this verse, it should scare us a little bit. This understanding of who God is and how God works, because we know that we are incapable of escaping our own failures and flaws. That we will never fully escape sin in our lives and our own imperfections. Now, when we remain close to God and Jesus, we might produce good fruit and some of that stuff might start to fall away. But we know that we never get to this place of perfection in which our own goodness is enough to stave us off from judgment. Now, if we were just to listen to this psalm and to have this understanding of how God works, it'd be really depressing. Because I don't know if there's any way to escape this condemnation. I don't know if there's any way 
to get on this path of the godly and avoid the path of the wicked. But this is where Jesus gives us nuance and he gives us hope. You see, the Apostle Paul, Pastor Paul, in his letter to the Romans, he interprets Jesus this way. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did you catch that? It is through Jesus that we are not condemned, that we are not judged by our flaws and imperfections, by the ways that we fail to fully escape sin in our lives because Christ died for us while we were still sinners. And through his life, death, and resurrection, we are given new life as well with him and with God. And so when we ask this question, what are you searching for? Where do you find hope, meaning, truth in the world? What I think that we're really searching for is Jesus. Because it's only when we find Jesus that we have a hope for the future. That we have a template for living our lives in a way that bears fruit that makes the world a better place to live in. And so as we continue our journey into the Psalms and we read the Psalms, I want you to search for the ways that Jesus appears. What, how would Jesus interpret these Psalms? But we're still going to continue to talk about these Psalms because we might be searching for Jesus, but in the Psalms, we can find the voice of those who are also seeking him. That we can resonate with the human experience and the emotions that these songs have. And that we can find the beauty and the hope of Jesus reflected in him. But ultimately, the things that we are searching for are not just pretty poems. We are searching for a God who loves us, who is intimately involved in our lives and shows us mercy and grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we give you thanks that you have drawn near to us, that you have given your son, Jesus Christ, to us. 
that through his life, death, and resurrection, we know that we are not captive to sin any longer. That there is forgiveness and mercy and reconciliation in your love. God, we ask that as we live into the world, that we might enter in to those who have strayed far away from you and be that example of love and mercy and kindness, that we might bear fruit in your world and honor you in ways that we can't even yet imagine. So God, be within the songs that are in our hearts. Continue to remain with us and continue to walk with us now until life everlasting. Amen.